We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church in Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. We are continuing in our sermon series, the book of Revelation, and we are in this particular section, chapters 2 and 3, in which John is writing individual letters to seven specific churches. And to each of the specific churches, he writes a specific letter, a letter that describes the character and the nature of Jesus that confronts or encourages the church out of their actions and their attitudes and then promises them how the gospel will be at work now and in the age to come. So this morning we're in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. So let me invite you to stand as we read God's word this morning. John is writing to the church in Philadelphia. Now to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David. Who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. To try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And the one who conquers I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name. For he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. Now, Philadelphia is the youngest of the seven cities that John writes to. It was founded about 150 B.C. by King Attalus of Pergamum. And it was named Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. We know this uh, based on the American city here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's named that because King Italus had this deep and abiding affection for his brother. Now, it was situated near an active range of volcanoes. And as these volcanoes over time would deposit ash in the air, that ash would fall into the soil, it created this rich, luscious soil that was perfect for the growing of grapes. So it was known for the development of these vineyards. It was sort of kind of like a common day Napa Valley or places in France that are known for their vineyards. But the problem with volcanoes is that not only do you have to worry about eruptions, but volcanoes also cause significant earthquake activity. This particular city, Philadelphia, was destroyed in 17 A.D., after an earthquake took place. Now, while other cities like Sardis, which John has written to, were destroyed by the earthquake, they recovered rather quickly. But Philadelphia, because of its proximity to the volcanoes, experienced a significant number of aftershocks. And so the people, because they couldn't restore the city, they moved outside into what would be kind of like uh, camp campgrounds or tent cities. Maybe some of you read this week a park record. Uh, there's some growing concern about people who are living on the hillsides here in Park City setting up kind of makeshift camping grounds. 
There's some real concern by citizens and residents of Park City. But that's what happened. These aftershocks would take place. People were afraid. And so they moved outside the city in order to be safe. Now, it's important to note that Philadelphia and Smyrna are the only two churches that John writes to in which they're not confronted with some issue that Jesus takes exception with. Both churches are commended for their faithfulness in the light of suffering that they experience. Both churches experience persecution from unbelieving Jews. Yet these two churches are actually strengthened in their faith by the suffering that they endure. Now Jesus describes himself in this particular letter using language and pictures and imagery that does not occur in Revelation chapter 1. All of the previous letters harken back to the image of Jesus that's found in Revelation 1. But this particular passage describes Jesus differently. Jesus is going to describe himself in relation to what he does and who he is. He's the holy and true one who holds the key of David. Who opens and shuts doors. It says he is the Holy One. Now holiness is a theme that is woven throughout the entire uh, Bible. And in order to understand it, it's most important that we understand it in relation to who God is and the nature of his being and character. Now when you and I think of holiness, we think of like holy rollers and Bible thumpers and kind of this idea of self-righteous people who are confident in their own moral superiority. Now, there is a sense in which holiness is defined by goodness. But holiness is something more than that. It's more than just ethical purity. That's not the primary emphasis of the term when you study holiness in the Bible. The primary idea of holiness in the Bible is something that's been set apart. Something that's been identified as unique or special. If you go back into the Old Testament, you can look in Chronicles. First Chronicles chapter 23, we see Aaron. Aaron is being set apart for a specific job and to play a specific role. He is set apart and given the responsibility of offering sacrifices for the people of God. He was designated as the one who was to do this. No one else could do this job. He was set apart for this specific work. If you go to the book of Exodus, Moses is tending sheep. He's kind of on the backside of a mountain. God appears to him in a burning bush. And when he draws near to see this bush that's, that's burning but not being consumed, do you remember what God says to him? He says, take off your sandals for this is holy ground. God had chosen that particular place to reveal himself to Moses. He had set that apart for something unique and special. When you move forward and the instructions for the tabernacle and the temple are given to God's people, there's this place. As you move from the outer court to the inner court, you finally enter the place where the Ark of the Covenant is, the representation, the physical manifestation of the presence of a holy God in the midst of a sinful people, and it's contained in the Holy of Holies. It's a special place set apart. You couldn't just go in there willy-nilly. It was the presence of a holy God, and it was entered into only one time of year. The use of holiness here, it stresses the nature of God, specifically the nature of Jesus, that he is God. Now, during his earthly ministry, Jesus claimed to be God on numerous occasions, and the religious leaders absolutely could not stand it. They considered it blasphemy, which is actually the opposite of holiness. When he would claim to be God, they rejected him as the Messiah 
And yet Jesus, here in this particular passage and numerous others, is continually revealed as God. The Son of God. The second person of the Trinity. But he also says he's true. He's the Holy and true one. Winston Churchill once stated that men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and they hurry off as if nothing happened. Now we have this weird relationship with truth. The society in which we find ourselves in, the influence of the Enlightenment and postmodernism, has caused us to question what is the nature of truth? Can truth really be known? But... Honestly, that's not a new question. Pilate asked this of Jesus. What is truth when he was before him? And the answer that we've come up with is that truth is subjective. So that each and every one of us can have our own truth. And at the same time, these truths can be competing with one another. So what may be true for you may not actually be true for me. Philosophers and scientists, they debate this issue of absolute truth. And they come up with this idea of what's called situational ethics. In which you don't define anything by absolute truth, but everything's kind of constantly and shifting based on the particular circumstance you find yourself in. What's ironic, though, is if you were to talk with somebody who's adopted this kind of postmodern mindset, and they were to you were to ask them a question, well, you know, what do you think about truth? And their response would be, over the course of this discussion, is there is no such thing as absolute truth. The irony is that that's an absolute statement in itself. Are you sure, absolutely sure, that no absolute truth exists? But to make a statement like that, that there is no absolute truth, contradicts their position. But we don't believe truth is relative. We don't believe that truth is just simply a set of facts that accurately reflect the world that we see and comprehend around us. But we speak and know truth that's revealed in the Bible is a person. And it's grounded in the nature of who God is. That's why Jesus said, I am the truth. Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians in chapter 4, he says, If you have heard of him, if you have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. See, truth is more than just the reality of the way we understand things to be. It's more than what we just imagine or wish or hope for. But truth in the Bible is presented as a person who's active, who's relational, and who's gracious. Why? Because Jesus is the personification of truth. And so if we're going to know truth, if we're going to live in truth, then it means we have to be rightly related in a proper relationship with the one who is all truth. So what does this mean? That Jesus is holy and true. It means that he is in a category all his own. He is the truth. He is the very truth of God. He is the word of God that reveals to us what we need to believe about the nature of salvation and how to be rightly uh, in a relationship with God. So we cannot limit our understanding of Jesus, as some people want to do, as just a good teacher, a moral philosopher, someone who has a lot to offer but who isn't the uniquely appointed Messiah, the Son of God. He's altogether different from Buddha or Muhammad, Confucius or whoever we might read about. And while they, they have spoken about things that might be true, uh, you know, the truth that they speak of only is true insofar as that it points to the ultimate truth, who is God himself. He's the holy and true one. But he goes on. He says he's the one with the key of David. The one who opens and shuts doors. 
Now, if you're going to understand this image, you have to be uh, you know, conscious of the fact that the book of Revelation relies very heavily on Old Testament knowledge. Old Testament stories, Old Testament imagery. And if you're going to understand what it means to be the one who holds the key of David, then you have to go back to Isaiah chapter 22, in which there's a prophecy concerning two individuals, Shebna and Alakim. Now, there's a prophecy against this man named Sheba, Shebna, and a prophecy for Alakim. Shebna was an officer in the court of Hezekiah who was one of the only few really good kings that God's people had in their history. And this person, Shebna, had been appointed to serve kind of as like his chief of staff or his treasurer or his secretary of state. And, and basically what he was doing was he was abusing this position. He was allowing only people who were favorable towards him or favorable towards policy positions that he holds to have access to the king. He was, in some ways, like the gatekeeper to Hezekiah. And he, if he disagreed with what you were wanting to talk with the king about, then he wouldn't let you have access to the king. So God saw that he was a prideful, evil man, and he says that he is going to drive him out. Shebna abused his position. Some scholars say he even conspired with Assyria, uh, Israel's enemy, in an attack on Jerusalem. So the Lord sends Isaiah the prophet to pronounce his judgment on Shebna. He says that Shebna will be brought down and another man will be lifted up in his place. Elikim was the servant of the Lord. He was dependable, he was faithful, and he was trustworthy. He was told that he would be given the keys of David. And when he was appointed to this new position, he literally had access to the riches and to the resources of the kingdom. In certain ways, he was the one who controlled who was in touch with the king. So here in Revelation chapter 3, John writes that he is the one who holds the key of David. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament Davidic covenant. That's to say that he is the Lord. He's the head of David's house. He is the gatekeeper through the kingdom of God. And it's only through Jesus that you and I can access the kingdom of God and the presence of God. All the promises, all the things that God has given to his people, they are either fulfilled in the person of Jesus or they're accessed by God's people through Jesus himself. He's the one who grants us access to God's presence. He's the one who opens up the power and the favor of God in our lives. A number of years ago, we opened up a safety deposit box here in town. We wanted to keep, you know, social security cards and passports and stuff like that safe. And so what they did was uh, they had me sign and fill out some paperwork, present my ID. And then they did like this. It was really cool. It was like this 3D laser scan in my hand. And then we programmed a little code, and every time we wanted to access the safety deposit box, we had to go there and put your hand in this device, and it would scan your hand and confirm that you were the rightful owner and had access to that vault. And then if you had the key, then you had access to that particular safe deposit box. Jesus is the one who holds the key. You and I, no matter how hard we try, our hand cannot be scanned and open up access to the presence and the power and favor of God in our lives. Jesus does that for us. He does that on behalf of his people. He opens doors that no one can shut. He shuts doors that no one can open. 
Now this idea, this picture of doors, appear in the Bible in numerous places. In the book of Acts, Paul, he wants to travel. He has a heart to take the gospel to the nations, and he wants to go to the province of Asia and preach. But the Holy Spirit forbids him. In Acts chapter 16, there's a door that's been shut. Then he wants to go into a different direction, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow him and his companions. Another shut door. And it's finally when Paul has a vision of a man beckoning him that the door is ultimately opened. Jesus is the one who opens and shuts doors. In the letter to the Corinthians, he writes, You need to pray for a wide door for effective work. To the Colossians, he says, pray that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Jesus is the one who opens and closes doors in the lives of his people, in the life of his church. If you look back over the course of your life, you went this afternoon and spent some time, you could see the places where God was at work. Opening doors and shutting doors. Guiding He is the one who opens and shuts doors. Our job as individuals, as families, as a church is to recognize the door's open, we need to move forward. The door's shut, we need to wait and be patient. We don't need to try and push on closed doors because Jesus is the one who has the key of David. He's the one who opens and shuts doors. I don't know if y'all remember the far side, it was a cartoon, but uh, as I was looking at this passage and thinking about all the time and energy I've spent in my life, Opening shut doors. It's like the student. Uh, Farside had this particular cartoon. Yeah, Midvale, a gifted school for students. And he's just leaning hard on this door that says, pull. A lot of our uh, activity in our spiritual lives is leaning on doors that we should just let Jesus pull when he's ready. So we have to have wisdom. We need to pray for wisdom. God, help us see. Winter doors open. Winter doors shut. When it comes to relationships in which we're sharing with people about the gospel, there are times when we need to speak and be bold. There are times when we need to shut our mouth and listen. We need to have the wisdom and the trust that Jesus will open doors when he's ready and he'll close them when he's ready. Jesus goes on. He describes this church as a church that has little power. And yet, he says they have kept his name. Other English translations, I read from the English Standard Version, other English translations translate this as weak, and we're not exactly sure what is meant by here. It does, could mean that this church was small numerically. It could mean that they had been trying different things, but yet they were having little impact on their community and been struggling, who knows, in a number of ways. But what we do know is that Jesus, even though you have little power, even though you are weak, you have continued in faithfulness to me. You've been faithful to my word, and you've been faithful to my name. Little strength, weakness, something that we often reject, usually goes hand in hand with great opportunities. Sometimes small churches think that there's little that they can do for the Lord. But it's a matter of perspective. Jesus commends this weak church, possibly a little church, for doing something, being faithful to the word and faithful to his name. They may not have had significant resources. They may not have a lot of people. They may not have had men and women in prominent places in the community, but they were faithful to the word and they were faithful to his name. He continues, he describes the synagogue of Satan that we read before in Revelation chapter 2. and It's just this gathering of Jewish people that had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But now, not only have they rejected Jesus, but they're actively persecuting God's people. They're challenging 
the church in Philadelphia. Maybe what they're saying is that, are you sure you're the people of God? I mean, if you were the people of God, wouldn't you be blessing that? And wouldn't it you know, be growing? And wouldn't you be experiencing all these wonderful things? That, I mean, if God really loved you, then that's what would be happening. Maybe they were feeling some of these same questions and some of these same doubts. Does God really treat the ones he loves this way? But he goes on with a promise. He says, one day, they will bow before you. And they will see that you are the ones that I love. He says, one day they'll come and kneel and they'll see that you're the ones I love. We cannot evaluate God's love in light of our present circumstances. It's so easy to look at what you're experiencing and then to make a decision about the the nature of God's love toward you. God demonstrated his love, Paul says, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The matter of God's love for you, if you are in Christ Jesus, is settled, irregardless of what suffering you're going through in this particular moment. The love of God for you in Christ Jesus is higher, it's deeper, it's wider, and you and I can begin to comprehend. So we have to resist the temptation to evaluate the love of God in light of what we see and experience and feel around us. He continues. He says, hold fast, lest someone come and take your crown. Now it's interesting that he uses this imagery because Philadelphia was known for all kinds of uh, sporting activities and the winner would be awarded a crown. And it was their glory. I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, we've got the NBA Finals going on right now. And there's a lot of debate and a lot of discussion about who's the greatest of all time. To me, there is no discussion. Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. LeBron James is maybe the greatest of this particular generation. But... Michael Jordan will not be defeated the way LeBron James and the Cavaliers are about to be defeated by the Golden State Warriors. So he would not allow, I mean, and if you read about him, I mean, he was not, he is not, and was not, it seems to be a very nice person, but he was the kind of person who would never be beaten. Yeah, early in his career, when they were developing the Bulls team, they lost to the Knicks and the Heat and the playoffs, but when he finally reached that place in his career where LeBron James has been, he was dominant. I mean, he absolutely could flip a switch and in his mind, in his physical ability, just say, you cannot and you will not beat me. And he would take over a professional basketball game like no one I've ever seen before. But John says, we're to hold fast because someone might come and steal our glory. Someone did steal Michael Jordan's glory. It was age. It was age. He retired and tried to play baseball, and he was, you know, he drew a lot of crowds to the Birmingham Barons. We were living in Birmingham at that particular time, but he was a terrible baseball player. I think he could hit a curveball. It's kind of like Pedro Serrano in Major League. Then he went back to basketball, and he was dominant, and he retired again, and then he tried to come back a third time, and it was clear that age had stolen his previous glory. John says, don't let anyone steal your glory. Hold fast. And if you continue, then you will emerge victorious. He says, I will make them pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never leave it. I will write them on the name of my God and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on them my new name. The first promise, I'll make you a a pillar in the temple of God, and you will never go out of it. 
Remember at the beginning we said that Philadelphia is located next to these volcanoes and because of the earthquakes and the aftershocks, the people actually left the city and created these temporary living situations. He's saying, look, there's stability in my kingdom. There is safety and there's security. And if you continue to the end, you will not be driven out. You will not have to leave it. You'll be pillars that are still standing in the kingdom of God. If you go to a lot of places and you see some of these temples, or at least the remains of the temples, the one thing that's still there a lot of times are pillars. They continue despite the rest of the building being destroyed. He says that's what will be. Even though this church is weak, even though maybe this church is small, he says they're going to be like the strong pillars in the kingdom of God and they will remain. The second part, he says, I'll write on them three names. There's the name of God, the name of the city of God, and the name of Jesus this new name that we don't know. Have you ever been given a new name? Like, have you ever been given a nickname or, you know, maybe it's a particular point in your life people call you a certain thing and, and, and people can know, like, if someone uses that nickname or that version of your name, where and how you know them. So I have a nickname called Plimbob. And it was from when I did summer camp when I was a college student. And so anybody who ever sends me an email that says Plimbob or if I ever get a phone call, Plimbob, I know exactly from which stage of life I know that person. Growing up, my sister called me Chubbs. Okay? Only a few select people are allowed to call me Chubbs. And they're all immediate, close family members. Sometimes you give a new name and it's a, it's, a, it's a term of affection. That's the situation here. These three names talk about something. One, it says they belong to God. They have been marked out. They belong to the living God. The second name declares where they're going. And the last name, the name of Jesus, we're not sure what that means, but we know it's a special promise that he's going to give to his redeemed. He's opening all kinds of doors. We just have to trust and follow him. He's opening to us the presence, the power, and the favor of God in our lives. Even though we may not be able to see it, we have to stand firm on the word of God, not on what we see and experience. Now, all religions of the world, major religions of the world, says that God has the key. Yeah, he's opening doors and closing doors. He's judging people and rewarding people. He's the ultimate and supreme one. But only the gospel says this God who possesses the key willingly chose to be shut out himself. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that he was willing to have the door slammed in his face so that God the Father could open it to you and to me. He was willing to give up the keys in order that he might unlock the kingdom of God to people like you, people like us. He does it by his grace. He does it so that we might not be locked out forever, but that we might be welcomed as beloved sons and daughters. You got doors in your life you need God to open. I don't know what they are, but all of us have doors that we need to be open. So this morning, would you trust Jesus? This morning, would you trust Jesus and he would open them when he wants to open them and how he wants to open them.